Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Beloved brethren, this evening of the Sunday of Orthodoxy, I'd like to share a few thoughts about our church. <clears throat> our Metropolitan Ephraim, our beloved hierarch, late Metropolitan Ephraim, used to say many times, and he even wrote it in his first encyclical to the flock, uh, that he considered our church the congregation of our church, the gathering of our church in this hemisphere, Western Hemisphere, to be a providential act, a great blessing from God. And there are manifold reasons why he thought that this was providential, not only because it was a, a genuinely great thing, great blessing that so many people from different backgrounds should come together in the worship of the Holy Trinity in apostolic and traditional in patristic manner in the Holy Orthodox Church here, but also because here in our church we have freedom. And what did he mean when he said we have freedom? We have freedom to immerse ourselves in the patristic faith, in the writings of the Fathers. We have freedom to be free from the shackles and the burden and the baggage of the few hundred years of Latin captivity and the practices and the teachings that have crept in in many of the local churches because of this captivity. He considered that here in North America we have this freedom and we have stood for this freedom to be free from the shackles of Latin captivity, to be free from the shackles of many practices and teachings that are a burden in other churches, in our traditional Orthodox countries, in many countries of our homelands, former homelands. This he considered to be providential, and this he considered to be something to be cherished, to be defended, to be cared for. And to give you an example of some of the things that we do enjoy in our church, and should bless God and thank God for having this freedom. I'll, I'll give you a few examples. The fact that in this holy monastery we can take communion every day. Do you think that that can be done anywhere else? And this started in the 50s, when the elders started his monastery, the monastery, in the early 60s. And when, uh, after establishing the house, uh, and having the priest in the house, we started to have daily communion. That was unheard of. And yet it is the most apostolic and patristic thing to do, to commune every day, because liturgy is to be celebrated every day whenever it is possible. It was unheard of, and yet our elder stood by it, because he was instructed in this patristic uh, practice by Elder Joseph and by the writings of the fathers. And although it was an unheard of thing, unheard of, to some people scandalous that people should take communion every day, yet we stood by this, stood by this free, for freedom to, to practice that which we know is right. And not only that, we inculcated this into our faithful, into our parishioners, that they should take communion as often as possible. They should take communion every Sunday at least. Do you think that is being practiced in many other places or preached in the other places? Among, I'm talking about all calendarists. No, not at all. It is something that is really resisted even, even to this day. Just only now on the holy mountain, in some of the monasteries, they start to have communion twice a week. And in the uh, monasteries that are following the, the old calendar, 
once in 40 days maybe they will take communion, every other week maybe. And some time ago it was several times a year maybe. That was in the church abroad even. Even in the church abroad, several times a year people used to take communion. That's it. Nothing else. And yet in our church we have this blessing. We have this blessing because, as Metropolitan said, it was providential that we should come together and to, to, to have this freedom in this hemisphere. Not only freedom from persecution, which is a great blessing, but freedom in our church not to be afraid to state and to practice that which we know is right, that which we know is patristic, even if it goes against the grain of the currently held ideas and practices, erroneous ideas and practices in the ecclesiastical uh, circles back in the old homelands. Let's take another example, the icono iconography. That, that which we enjoy throughout the decades of the existence of the monastery, right from the beginning of the founding of the monastery, to that as St. Photius in his beautiful sermon that we read uh, yesterday, says that icons irrigate the soul with the grace and the beauty that comes from it. Traditional iconography irrigates the souls that we have the blessing, we have had the blessing from for half a century now, that our eyes should be irrigated with traditional iconography without any addition of the Western Renaissance or Baroque art, things that are humanistic and not spiritual, and that we should depict the way traditionally the, uh, our Savior and the Mother of God and the saints are depicted without the addition of the condemned practice of depicting, for example, God the Father, which the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which, we are, which uh, is the a council that condemned the icon icon iconoclasm, also condemned the depiction of the Father, who no man has seen. And yet that practice is prevailing throughout the Orthodox world. So to have this blessing that for half a century, not only of ourselves to have the blessing of, of venerating the icons that, are, that have been painting in traditional uh, uh, way, but also to disseminate, to propagate, to give out and to establish the precedence that this is the true art of the church. This is the, 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 the gateway to gateways and windows to the heavens and not the art that was being, uh, the, the, the way the icons were depicted for the few hundred years already, in the most uh, terrible Renaissance and Baroque style, which has no spiritual uplifting, but rather is humanistic. And yet, I'll give you another example. In our church, it is a given of what we teach concerning the, what happens after the Great Judgment Day, what is the nature of that fire, which is called the, 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 the river of fire, which will come from the, throne of God, from the throne of God? What is the understanding, true understanding of the church of what is hell? That it is not a special place created by God to punish sinners, and that, that God delights punishing its sinners, that, that the fire, uh, which is the, uh, the, the, the river of fire, is some kind of a creation that God created to punish sinners. In our church it is a given that we understand that the hell is not a choice of God, but choice of man. And that river of fire is not an instrument of torment, but it is the presence of God 
which is the same presence which it becomes light for those who are saved, becomes fire for those who are damned out of their own choice because of their inability to respond to the love of God, they are scourged by love of God, which is that very same fire, as St. Isaac the Syrian teaches us. All this was collected in that beautiful talk given by Dr. Alexander Kalomiros in the 1980. And that is a given in that church, that that is a traditional teaching of the church. Go out and see in how many churches will they look with, with blank and, and stare at you when you explain these things to them. To this day, they're debating elsewhere whether the teaching of the river of fire being the love of God and the presence of God is a heresy. It seems that some people have, well, the only time they have is to look for other people's heresies and to, and to accumulate as many heresies, find as many heresies in others as possible instead of, to, instead of, of listening, instead of trying to learn something. And many other things we could say. Where in our church we enjoy the freedom to actually immerse ourselves in the Father's. To actually state without fear what is found in the Father's about this and that uh, issue. About this and that practice. And this is why my Metropolitan considered this to be a great blessing. Something to be cherished. Never to be taken for granted. And never to go with the flow but rather to go what is right even if we are few, and those who, are, who say the, the contrary are, are a great multitude. And we were taught to know how to balance this, that never to go out and impose on others things that we know. They have been there for, for generations, and it is difficult for people to change from one to the other, and never to impose or declare as heretics people that have been practicing out of ignorance, or because they were taught this way, things that we know are erroneous, and yet the people practice it out of innocence. To be balanced and moderate in this, but at the same time to be principled of never allowing things that we know are wrong in our own church, and never allowing to be go with the flow just because the majority thinks otherwise. And especially if we are being imposed something from somewhere else. And we are told that we have to change because of this and that need, that to, to not only to be principled, but to make it a matter of dogmatic stance. Because one thing is to be mistaken, one th thing is to, uh, uh, to, to be mistaken out of innocence or because of long-standing practice, but another thing is to persist in an error. Another thing is to persist in, in without, uh, without to, to persist with full force in an erroneous teaching and try to impose it on others. That becomes a matter of dogma. And why do I say it becomes a matter of dogma? The celebration that we have today of the veneration of the icons proves that every single practice, pious practice of the church that is challenged persistently by erroneous, from an erroneous position, becomes a matter of dogma. The veneration of the icons before the iconoclasm started was not a matter of dogma, it was a matter of pious practice. People venerated icons and they did so in, in different manners in different parts of the, of the Christian world. 
But once iconoclasm started, once iconoclasts came to deride and to teach against the holy icons, it, didn't st it, it stopped being simply a pious practice to venerate the icons. It became a matter of dogma, of the same value, of the same strength, and of the same power as other dogmas of the Church, like the divinity of our Savior, of the, his two natures, the human and uh, divine nature, concerning his incarnation, concerning his two wills, the divine and human will. The icon veneration is among the dogmas of such importance. Why? How did it end up in, in, in this list of dogmas? Because it was challenged. It was challenged persistently. Not as a mistake, but a whole teaching emerged that derided the veneration of the icons. And that which something was a, a practice, a pious way of behaving, the veneration of the icons, once it was challenged, it wasn't only a matter of veneration and, and a pious practice, it became a matter of doctrine and dogma. In the same way, any other practice of the church which becomes challenged and which becomes a matter of contention and which becomes a matter of being uh, repudiated by some persistently it, it stops being a matter of simple practice it becomes a matter of dogma and that is what we should uh, have bear in mind we were taught to be moderate to be balanced when it comes to dealing with others who we know out of mistake are practicing things that they are. But at the same time, with the same measure of power and strength, to be principled and to be steadfast when we ourselves are being challenged without reason, persistently, about any of the things that I enumerated, any other thing that might come up. Therefore, let us bear this in mind, beloved Christians. That which Amotropolitan has said many times, there was one of my last conversations with him where he mentioned that it, our freedom here in the uh, Western Hemisphere, not freedom from persecution only, but freedom inside the church, should be cherished, should be defended, should be embraced with the same moderation and zeal that our elder and our Metropolitan taught us to do so. Let us never forget, therefore, the blessings that we have. Never forget the gift that we were given, the safe haven that God gave us in form of our church. And always be there to continue this legacy of being both principled and moderate in defending this freedom of ours. May our Savior deem us worthy of this. Amen.